the world might be drunk, but we're stone cold sober. Welcome to The Absolute State, a podcast from the investigative shit posters at Left Coast Right Watch. Each episode will bring you deep dives and analysis of politics and extremism from the absurdly dangerous to the dangerously absurd. I'm LCRW's editor in chief, Abner Hauke. And I'm LCRW Senior Strategic Analyst, Michael Borman. This week, we're talking to San Francisco journalist Joe Eskenazi about the recall of progressive district attorney Chase Boudin. Then we take a look at terror threats made against a small-town Wisconsin middle school that got authorities to stop a Title IX investigation. After that, we'll talk to the Q Remedy Research Collective, who have a convoy update for us. We'll wrap up with What the Fuck, Arizona? This week, Haley from Arizona Right Wing Watch is going to tell us all about the absolute state of Roe versus Wade. Chesa Boudin, the progressive San Francisco district attorney, was recalled last week by about a 60-40 vote. We at LCRW were initially interested in the recall because of local right-wing figures who were obsessed with Boudin. As the recall gained steam, it was clear that conspiracy theory had very little to do with getting it off the ground. Boudin was a reformer who ended cash bail and made efforts at police accountability and reducing incarcerations. National media glommed onto the story, saying it was a signifier of liberal America craving a return to law and order. But as Joe Eskenazi wrote in Mission Local last week, San Francisco isn't the hyper-liberal place national media think it is. So I just wanted to ask a few basic questions since your article was so beautifully written. Thank you, sir. What's what, what in your mind is the discrepancy between what it actually means for the city and what it actually says about the city and what national media is saying it says about the city? I think the discrepancy is very large, and I think it's a lot of it gets back to issues of perception versus reality. I think a lot of people are upset about uh, the state of things in San Francisco, which is understandable uh, because uh, there is a lot of visible poverty and homelessness. There is a lot of visible drug use. People are having a hard time of things. You know, gas prices are high, etc. The economy is on a, on a bit of a teeter-totter because people aren't going to work and therefore the downtown corridor isn't getting sales tax. And so, you know, San Francisco's whole economic model is precarious right now. But that's not Chesa Boudin's fault, and, and a lot, or at least not directly his fault. In almost all of the things that people say that they are upset about in San Francisco, most of them are under the aegis of the mayor, and most of them, Chesa Boudin, the district attorney, has a nominal role or a non-central role or no role at all. So, you know, he, he was dangled in front of the voters like a pinata, and they struck him. And the large amount of money put into, into the campaign of convincing San Franciscans that everything was going to hell and that, uh, and that things were terrible and that the crime was rampant and that this man would not charge uh, was successful. So that happened. If you're asking about the impression here, uh, a lot of national publications uh, wrote that San Francisco sent a message to the nation or that you know uh, it was a tough night for progressive prosecutors. It was a tough night for a progressive prosecutor, Chesa Boudin, 
in Alameda County, their progressive prosecutor uh, is in the lead in the election over there. And Alameda County has much more of a violent crime problem than San Francisco. Contra Costa County, also a progressive prosecutor, is doing just fine. And the law and order candidate for attorney general, Anne-Marie Schubert, was trounced by uh, Rob Bonta, uh, the sitting attorney general. So at best, it's a mixed message. So... Who actually wanted him gone? Could you tell us a little bit about who was funding the recall and um, who actually really hated this guy? So Chase Boudin, uh, the people were calling for his recall before he was even installed into office. This was this was not an unpredictable thing. What became unpredictable is the success of the signature gathering drive because of the vast amounts of money going into it. And this money, by and large, came from a few very wealthy individuals, uh, the same people who had donated to the same political action committee uh, that put a tremendous amount of money into uh, our elections in the last election cycle and were notably unsuccessful. This time, on a much more straightforward issue, you know, Chase Boudin or the highway, they were successful. Uh, they're the names that you've heard. Bill Obendorf, the, uh, the wealthy Republican donor. Uh, some San Francisco uh, oligarchs uh, of old. <laughs> People whose names have been on buildings here for generations donated. D.D. Wilsey donated. Uh, the campaign was handled by some of the more experienced political sharks in San Francisco. You know, you can say what you will about them, but they know how to move money around and they know how to how to make a message. We mostly cover right-wing extremism, and the thing that fascinated me about Boudin's recall is very reactionary Nancy Pelosi's district city, right? What does the recall actually say about the city? Uh, San Franciscans, I wouldn't say that we were duped, but I would say that we were willing recipients of uh, basically a modern Willie Horton campaign to... uh, Forget about the statistics. Forget about uh, how everybody else is doing in the country. Uh, things are out of control. And and if the statistics show otherwise, there must be something wrong with those statistics. So uh, I, I think that San Franciscans, you know, again, uh, I think that we are liberal. But as I've, as I've said on other outlets, I think that a lot of that liberalism is vacuous. And I think that uh, dismissing statistics... And, uh, and and behaving reactionarily like this is something that we would think people do elsewhere. But we did it here. Now, you could have good reasons for, trying to, for disliking this DA. Uh, I, I don't think I can get up here and say that he was doing a great job. But his predecessor wasn't doing a great job. And his predecessor's predecessor wasn't doing a great job. And his predecessor's 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 wasn't, wasn't doing a great job. You'd have to go back a long ways to find someone that people think was doing a great job here, probably back to Arlo Smith. So, <laughs> so you know, suddenly if we're going to start voting out and recalling, uh, rather, rather recalling instead of voting out incompetent politicians, San Francisco could just basically shake City Hall sideways. That was a very good question you asked. That is the question. This is, this is on San Francisco. This is about us. Why does national media always have this really bizarre version of San Francisco in their heads. Misconstruing the motivations for San Francisco doing what it does and then using this to somehow tell a larger story that is uh, pressed onto the national democratic movement. You're making double and triple bank shots of foolishness and making assumptions that just don't make sense. As to why San Francisco looms large in people's minds, it's just a larger-than-life kind of place. When I wrote my story, San Francisco has the same population as Columbus, Ohio, but you never see Columbus used as a national metaphor. 
I don't think that's because Columbus is not in the middle of a larger regional area. I think it's just because San Francisco looms large in people's minds because it's a loud city. Kiel is a landlocked town about midway between Milwaukee and Green Bay. Back in May, three students were subject to a Title IX investigation after they allegedly harassed a fourth who wanted to be referred to with they-them pronouns. When we spoke last week to anti-rape activist and writer Wagatwe Wanjuki, we asked her about the case. Wagatwe's written extensively about Title IX issues, and we wanted to hear her take on the situation. So there was a case in a small town in Wisconsin. There was a Title IX case brought against three students for allegedly harassing another student, not respecting the pronouns that the student wanted used. This became a right-wing cause celeb, and then there started being bomb threats against the middle school. And it ended up being shut down and shut down and shut down over and over again by these bomb threats. And finally, the Title IX case was dropped. Since you write a lot about Title IX, if you've got any insight into the case and the big picture of pattern of violence we're seeing here. Totally. I think it's really important to think about um, Title IX isn't just about, you know, women in sports. It's about... um, equal access to education and through that by um, making gender discrimination illegal. So that will also include trans students, Uh, you know, so being misgendered, being bullied, that's supposed to go under Title IX. And so unfortunately, we know that the right likes to pick certain cases, individuals and start attacking them. And so when I heard that they did end up closing the investigation, that is terrifying to me because Title IX is a civil rights law. Um, A lot of Title IX's advancements is actually based, um, builds off of um, advancements for race, like uh, protections against race discrimination in education. And so I'm thinking also about the larger ramifications where there, you know, there is this fascist creep where they are trying to attack civil rights for young people. And, the adults for them to cave in. When you cave into violence, you're basically telling them, okay, this tactic works. So now if there's just any sort of complaint in terms of a student trying to assert their, their civil rights in schools, all someone has to do is throw a threat their way. And now it's going to be over. And that's really scary to think about. <sighs> Even if a case like this comes up and there are no threats against the school or anybody involved in the case, this is likely to have a pretty huge chilling effect on bringing cases like this up, right? Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is that it's not like the Board of Education is super well-funded and have tons of capacity. So I'm sure that also influences their willingness to be like, you know what, this is not worth it because it's a big, it's a complex thing. And I think it probably also discourages people from participating in these investigations in terms of like being witnesses or being interviewed, right? If there's already someone being harassed, people are going to be less likely to be like, oh, I don't want to be to be a part of that. So I'm definitely worried about that chilling effect. Also, maybe this might make people want to do it very much secretly um, and which is fine. But I also think about the idea of like how much media coverage has been so helpful for the Title IX movement in this past um, wave 
which is probably why they're doing it. And it's unfortunately working. Just seriously, thank you so much again for your time. Everybody on the team really appreciates you and your work. Aw, I appreciate y'all. Thank you so much. You can check out Wagatwe's work on her website at wagatwe.com. We'll have links to where you can find her work and ways to support her in the show notes. Next, we're talking to Q-Remedy Research for an update on the truckered convoy and the bizarre things that they're up to. So we're joined once again by Q-Remedy Research Collective, who've been tracking the convoy diligently for... How long has it been now? Over, like, two months? It's been over a hundred days at this point. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that reaction a lot when I tell people that I've been tracking the convoy from the start. Could you tell us what they've been up to for the past week? So the past week has been interesting because it seemed like they were finally getting their some momentum. They were getting themselves pulled together. They had a small rally their first weekend in West Virginia, and then they just sort of piddled around town for the week between then and their next rally, and did pretty okay. They met with some locals, they talked to some politicians, and uh, they handed out brochures all over the place in shopping centers and Walmart parking lots. And then they had a rally Sunday, June 5th. And it was a lot bigger than I thought it would be. They probably had at least 100 people there. They had at least one elected politician from West Virginia, Patricia Rucker, who's a state senator. And uh, a bunch of other characters I hadn't expected. They also had a man named Tim Chambers. He's known as the Saluting Marine. And he has been saluting the motorcyclists at the Rolling to Remember event for decades. So I was very surprised to see him there because people who do that kind of activism generally keep themselves a bit more neutral on the political spectrum. But it uh, it was a bigger name than I expected them to get. This guy's called the Saluting Marine. He's called the Saluting Marine. The story that he told on stage is, and and is, is in line with the story I have read in the media, is that he was at the Rolling to Remember, which used to be called Rolling Thunder event in D.C. years and years ago, possibly decades ago. Um, it's an event focused on recognizing MIA and POW veterans, people who never came home from the war. And so it's an, an action to keep those people in the minds of the average American. And so he saw these motorcyclists driving through D.C. decades ago, stepped off the street and snapped a salute. He's a Marine. And uh, it was apparently caught on video or in some way noticed and it became his thing he's been saluting the rolling to remember event for years and years and now he's a speaker he tours he goes various places and spreads patriotism i I don't really understand what his shtick is but he came and he spoke at the rally for the 1776 restoration movement he say anything particularly juicy if, I, if you were asking me about a mainstream politician, I would say, yeah, it's pretty juicy. But in terms of what we heard at the rest of the rally on Sunday, it was pretty boring. 
so just kind of the same talking points, but maybe a bit milder. It's kind of the same talking points, maybe a bit milder. Um, The most stunning moment of the rally for me on Sunday was Patricia Rucker, state senator, talking about how drunk driving should be legal. There should be no laws against drunk driving in Patricia Rucker's view of the world. Go on. Because it's the government taking care of you. The government shouldn't take care of you. You should have as much freedom as you want, even if that freedom is to run over small children with your car while you're drunk out of your mind. I'm baffled by this particular interpretation of the Constitution and, frankly, of the responsibilities we have to each other as part of a society. But people thought it was great. They applauded and clapped and cheered, and and I just sat there watching and thinking about the kind of world these people want to create. You know, I'm imagining, you know, the cliché politician kissing a baby, except they're throwing their babies in front of her car. Right. I mean, it's it's hilarious because their whole belief in the world is like we have to protect protect children. We have to shield children. They believe that kids shouldn't be exposed to the horrors and the harshness of adult life, basically. Um, And then they turn around completely and say, oh, but we shouldn't have drunk driving laws. Oh, there shouldn't be rules about wearing seatbelts. Oh, we shouldn't vaccinate our children. It's just a really wild way of of looking at the world. Well, speaking of children, this is a terrible segue, but um, <laughs> it seems like uh, they're debating whether Bandit should be back. Could you tell us a bit about, remind our listeners about who Bandit is and um, what what that whole thing's about? So Bandit's legal name is Marcus Kopik, and... Bandit's legal name was discovered way back when the group was in California. He was dancing on a truck, very sort of, I don't want to say photogenic, but drawing the eye. And so he was on a lot of live streams and a lot of stills were pulled and put on Twitter as, oh, look at this ridiculous guy who's part of the convoy. And people got to be curious. Who is this guy? What's his reason for being there? And this happens fairly often. You see someone at the convoy, you think, oh, I want to know the story of how this person ended up here. And usually it's pretty boring, right? Usually it's like, oh, they lost a job, or they got exposed to radical 4chan politics, or oh, they went full QAnon. And I'm realizing it's ridiculous to call those things boring. But that's the typical path that these people are following. So boring in the context of how the convoy members got there. And when we looked into this guy, it turned out he was a child molester. He was a registered sexually violent predator and uh, had spent seven, eight years in prison, uh, had pled guilty to two of the seven charges, and the other five were dropped, I assume, as part of a plea agreement. This was discovered while the convoy was in California, while they were traveling up the coast. You can read all about it in the great article I wrote for Left Coast Right Watch, which I'm sure there'll be a link for somewhere. 
so the information went public and the organizers of the convoy asked him to leave, which was, I believe, a reasonable thing to do. Um, and some people didn't think it was a reasonable thing to do. I think there are legitimate discussions to be had about how people are reintegrated into the community after getting out of prison. Those conversations are especially complicated when you have an offense like this involved. But I wouldn't say that they should be reintegrated by camping with poorly supervised children in parking lots. So Bandit went home. This was back the last week of April. Then a few weeks later, as the convoy passed through Ohio, there was a rumor that Bandit had visited the group. Bandit is from Indiana. It's fairly close for him to come and see the group. And he saw them then. And we thought that was the end of it. And then, Monday, June 6th, uh, one of the organizers of the said, with an excited tone in her voice, Bandit's coming back. He just has to get his truck fixed. He's coming back. This is very exciting. And I was a bit taken aback by this. And of course, as I do, I clipped part of this video and I put it on Twitter. And the information got back to the convoy, to the 1776 Restoration Movement. And it was discussed in this morning's meeting. The thing that came out of this morning's meeting was Santa had spoken to Bandit's parole officer. The parole officer thought it was a good idea for Bandit to come rejoin the group. And so he would likely be returning and rejoining the group in the next few days if he gets his truck fixed. His parole officer thought it was a good idea. Let me rephrase that. Santa said that someone who said they were Bandit's parole officer said it was a good idea. There's no proof besides Santa's claims. You could call me a little jaded, but I would require proof of something like that. And then the discussion has continued today on Telegram. Some people are very upset at the thought of him rejoining the group. Other people are very excited. Some people are on the fence. Some people say, you haven't seen the transcripts, so you don't know what really happened. There are as many viewpoints as you can imagine, and probably more. So it is not clear yet what exactly is going to happen. That's a disturbing thread in this whole thing. Give us kind of a little mini profile of Santa. Sure. So Santa, his name is David Riddell. He drives a truck, a big black semi. His story is that he used to be a prison guard, in fact, and I have uh, corroboration of this. Uh, at a certain point, sometime a decade ago, he decided he no longer wanted to be a prison guard, and so now he's a truck driver. Uh, he's also is from a family of preachers. He identifies as a preacher's kid, and so, and is very religious, and so has that sort of vibe about him, someone who likes to preach, someone who considers themselves good at preaching. And, uh, and he's a proud boy. He's a member of the Proud Boys. 
and he's kind of taken a leadership role within the um, 1776 Restoration Project. I got the name right, didn't I? You did, you did. So Santa started to step up into a leadership role as the group was doing their third and final cross-country drive. Um, So this was late April, early May. They went to a Proud Boy-affiliated event up in Washington State, They drove back across the country, and Santa was a big part of finding the sites and organizing the logistics for that last cross-country trip. Um, And so he was sort of working more behind the scenes with the organizers, but was also the face of the movement, both publicly and to the people on site. And so when when the People's Convoy... Uh, official organizers pulled the rug out on May 20th and said, oh, we've declared victory, this is over. Santa is the person who stepped up and said, no, this is not over, we didn't win, I'm going to keep this going, and anyone who wants to help can stay and help me do this. And, you know, for all of the bad things I can and will say about Santa, he's a very charismatic man who's a strong speaker, And a lot of people decided they wanted to stay and work on this project. And so now Santa is, he is the leader. There are other people who, um, he describes them as his lieutenants or as his sergeants, but Santa is the general. Santa is the one in charge. This is not a democracy. He has said several times, it is not a democracy and he doesn't actually like democracy very much. Um, So Santa is the one making most of the choices and uh, the rest of the leadership organizing team sort of helps to implement them. But he's the one largely in charge of of the direction of of the movement at this point. Oh, gosh. Did you hear about the July 4th thing? I forgot. No, no. Maybe maybe that would be a good thing to end your old dispatch on. Right. So uh, so on any other day, this would have been the lead. This would have been the big news I was talking about all day. But the potential return of a convicted child molester has sort of pushed everything else down in importance. Um, but the announcement Santa made this morning is that they will start their or attempt their occupation of D.C. on July 4th. They do love those cliches, don't they? They do love those cliches. I'm not sure I believe them. If it was me planning something, I would probably have some sneaky alternative date. But I think that that's probably going to be what they try. I'm curious to see how it goes. It's a little hard for me to understand how they think they have a chance. Washington, D.C. is one of the most surveilled cities in the country, probably in the whole world. There are probably a dozen law enforcement agencies that work together to keep various places safe and contained and doing what the law enforcement people want them to do. So the thought of just like thinking you can sneak into a city and set up an occupation without someone stopping you is just really kind of absurd to me it's i i keep thinking they must have some plan because otherwise it just sounds totally totally diluted and bonkers 
where the hell are they even getting money from now if, like, their main org is pulled out? I mean, they, they released their finances a couple of days ago, right before their Telegram channel got wiped by hackers. Um, this is like all of these ridiculous things that have happened um, over the past few days. So they released the finances on Telegram, and their official finances, what they're saying at least, is they've raised about $25,000 so far, which isn't nothing and isn't a lot. But, you know, they're living in a parking lot eating donated food, so they might be able to get through the next month, the next four weeks until July 4th on that money. I'm not really sure. Do you have a sense of who the hell is even donating to them anymore? Or? I get the sense it's the same kind of people who donate to, like, the televangelist religious people on the TV. Often it's people, and you'll hear them, you'll see them talk on the chats of these live streams. They're often people who are lonely, often people who are homebound or older. And having this, these live streams, having these interactions gives them a sense of hope and warmth and connection that they don't really get from their everyday lives. And so, you know, they scrape together 10 or 20 bucks from their social security check every month and send it off to this group. And to them, that probably seems like a worthwhile investment. And you only need a thousand of those people to raise $20,000. I keep thinking back to our last interview when you said these people were traveling around to beautiful places in the country and they would never go anywhere pretty or enjoy where they were at and just kind of huddle together like talking conspiratorially to each other in these parking lots or wherever in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and and yet they're you know for some people their live streams and all of that is this you know window out into the world and escape for these people who support them and it just the picture of that kind of person's worldview in my head is very bleak there are a lot of people out there who have pretty bleak lives any small bit of hope any small bit of excitement or joy they get is worth a couple dollars and you know we can we can talk all about the various failings of the society we live in that there are people in those situations but but there are and people like the 1776 restoration movement will profit off of them will either deliberately or accidentally manipulate people like that in order to benefit very insightful and your analysis is excellent as always um where can our listeners and readers find your work and uh, support your work? So most of the work that I'm doing now is on our Twitter feed. Um, it's quick and it's easy, and so it's the best way to get this information out in a short way. Um, you can support us by buying us a coffee. The link to that is also on Twitter. And we're also working on setting up a Patreon. So hopefully in the next week or two, we'll be able to send you there and you can become a regular supporter and help us do this work on an ongoing basis. Well, we'll make sure to link to that Patreon and uh, everything else in the show notes. So thank you once again. Thank you. Now we turn to Haley from Arizona Right Wing Watch. 
I hear we're going to have a light topic this week. The fate of Roe versus Wade in Arizona. After after a long and arduous series of technical complications that our podcast viewers will know nothing about, what have you got for us this week? I'm talking about what happens in Arizona if Roe falls due to the incoming SCOTUS decision. What's going to happen if the Supreme Court says, yeah, you can go ahead and ban abortion? Well, in Arizona, it's kind of complicated, as is all things Arizona. We're going to have two laws on the books. We recently passed a bill, SB 1164. It's a 15-week ban on um, abortion, including in cases of rape and incest. And um, some miscarriage treatment will be affected. That'll go into effect... 90 days after this session ends, this year's session ends. We also currently have another abortion restrictions on the legal books in Arizona. They're actually from when we were a territory, not even when we were a state. So it's, it's, it's territorial law. So these laws kind of like overlap and contradict each other in this weird way, right? Yeah, so... Obviously, the 15-week ban was a Republican-led bill. The state lawmaker who sponsored it, Senator Nancy Bartow, she's been saying, when Roe falls, my bill is obsolete. Because there's a debate going on kind of amongst the Republicans here, like, okay, when Roe Roe falls, what's the law? And Governor Ducey has said, we're just doing the 15-week ban. We're not going back to the territorial days, which abortion would be completely outlawed, and you could get sentenced to jail if you get an abortion or perform one. Nancy Bartow, the legislator who who sponsored um, the 15-week ban, has said her bill will be obsolete because she wants it to also go back to the territorial law. They want it completely outlawed. So some Republicans here are saying... It won't be completely outlawed. We'll do the 15-week law. Some Republicans are saying, like, no, we're completely banning it as soon as it's as soon as the decision is made. So we don't know where it's going here, actually. What are groups that are trying to defend people in the state who can get pregnant? What are they doing? Well, they're going to have to change the way that they provide care to people. So if it's totally outlawed here, people will have to go out of state. They've been talking about how the funds will now go towards basically travel expenses and um, lodging expenses to get people to nearby areas where abortion will still be legal. So that would be New Mexico, California, Colorado, and in Arizona, some people might get sent to Mexico. I think we just have to expect for the worst and kind of help each other right now and try to help people get the resources that they need. With the Republicans, it's kind of like a game, right? It's like, oh, you're banning abortion? Well, I'm going to ban it even fucking harder, you know? Right. Uh, They just like to one-up each other, but, like, they actually do write these bills that hurt us. We're making sure we take an attitude of don't despair, prepare on this podcast. I think another thing that people should prepare for, prepare for some pretty shitty fucking people to be out there. They don't just want to, like, counter-protest. They want to, like, film and harass you. That's what I've seen at these events. Like, there was a clown car of Proud Boys at one of them. 
I don't know, they just want to intimidate you from not showing up, so I think you should show up. Yeah, so obviously we're not in the business of telling people what to do, but be aware and be accountable for that because I know most of our listeners will probably want to turn out for any of these kind of protests and you should anticipate this kind of harassment. They're not satisfied with the way of the world, so they will make their presence known and they will fucking harass and intimidate you until you shut the fuck up. That's it for this week's edition. One quick announcement. LCRW is co-sponsoring a Rock Against Racism show August 20th at the Bluebird in Reno. Cobra Skulls are headlining and the Fleshies are playing. Tickets are $15 and you can get them at the link below in the show notes. The Absolute State and all Left Coast Right Watch journalism is supported by listeners and readers like you. If you'd like to set up a recurring donation to support our work, go to patreon.com slash lcrw or check out our pinned tweet at LCRW News on Twitter. We could sure use the help. Until next time, don't despair, prepare.